Good morning, everyone. Let's go ahead and uh, go before the Lord with a word of prayer. Lord, we come before you this morning, and we're just so grateful for your continued blessing over us, just over the... uh, the word, just thank you for the scripture that was read this morning and how it fits in so wonderfully with what we're going to be talking about. And Lord, we just are so grateful to you when you uh, minister to our needs. And many of us are going through dark times right now. And we thank you that you are always with us, always over us. We're so grateful to you. And we just uh, pray for this time as we open your word in Jesus' name. Amen. If you could. Um, Open your Bibles, if you would, to uh, Galatians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 6 through 10 this morning. This week we will be continuing our study in the introduction of Galatians. And we'll be looking at a review of the issues uh, facing Paul, including the denial of his apostleship, And more importantly, his anger towards the distortion of the gospel. So if you please, if you're able, if you'd please stand in the honor of the reading of the word of God. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Which is not just another account, but there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, even now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. For now I am seeing the favor of people or of God. Am I seeking the favor of people or of God? Or am I striving to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a bond servant of Christ. You may be seated. We discussed last week how spiritually charged... The atmosphere is here in Paul's letter. We see the gospel of justification by faith alone under attack from Judaizers within the church trying to undermine the purity and simplicity of salvation. And it is thrown at the reader by Paul now with a fierce power. Paul likely wrote this epistle from Ephesus sometime either right before or soon after the importance the important Jerusalem council in AD 49, where the Christian leaders faced their church, their first church-wide crisis regarding the doctrine of salvation. Most think right after. But problems have been brewing in Galatia since the end of Paul's first missionary journey. Some were trying to teach that a man is saved by grace plus works. Others were believing that a man is saved by grace alone. Should Gentile converts keep all the dietary laws and circumcision? The book of Galatians is really divided into three sections. Uh, We're currently obviously in chapter 1 and chapter 2 together um, form the defense of the gospel's origination. That it's not of human, but it is of a divine origin. Chapters 3 and 4, with its vindication in that the Old Testament bears testimony to its truth. And then last, 5 and 6, focus on the cross of Christ providing true liberty. With the call for the Galatians to stand firm, as does Paul, in the cross of Christ. Now, as we begin to look at verses 6 through 9 in particular, it's where we finished off last week. We can really summarize this section in, uh, in just three words. Paul's wonder, his wisdom, and his warning. His wonder, verse 6 as we discussed, is aimed at Christian converts. I am amazed 
thomazo, that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. So now you're deserting God, the one who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel? This is the nature of an outburst, one of anger and shock rather than indignation, amazement rather than resentment. It is the speed of their degeneration that is so alarming. And it's not just quibbling over a minor theological point. It's a transfer of loyalty from the work of Christ to a completely different gospel. Not a variation of Orthodox Christianity, like I'm a Baptist and you're a Presbyterian, but of an alien gospel. The word amazed, to marvel, to stand amazed, the matzo, is really pretty common in the gospels. It's used over 33 times by many who marvel at the miracles of Jesus. In fact, there are only two times in the New Testament where Jesus is said to marvel. One is in Mark 6, verse 7, where Jesus marvels at the unbelief in Nazareth. The other is in Luke 7, 9, where Jesus marvels at the centurion and his great faith. Paul only uses it one other time in 2 Thessalonians 1 in describing marveling at the second coming of Jesus. I want to go back a few pages um, from Galatians. Go with me, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm going to... Verse 1. I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin in Christ. But I am afraid... That's the Greek word for bottomai, alarmed, that as the serpent deceived Eve by his trickery, your minds will be led astray from sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, this you tolerate very well. For I consider myself not in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles. But even if I am unskilled in speech, I am not so in knowledge. In fact, in every way we have made this evident to you in all things. So Paul here is saying, this is staggering. And I am afraid, I am perplexed, because I understand the deceptiveness of Satan. And this is what we're dealing with here in Galatians. People, this is how Satan operates. He started this way. He deceived Eve by his craftiness. And he did, he did this with her. He'll do the same with you. And your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. By the way, calling here in, Galatians, in verse 6 in Galatians is, ever, is everywhere in Paul's writings whereby the Holy Spirit savingly applies the invitation to the heart and life of those he chooses. He regenerates those who are completely dead and gives them life, full and free, with the promise ahead of sanctification through the Holy Spirit. Does Paul know who these people are who he's addressing? Well, they're not stated by name. But that's why in evangelism or in any kind of general exhortation, the message of Christ always goes out to all who are listening. Now, are these apparent backsliders, the ones of whom Jesus called out? In 1 John 2, where he says, Children, it is the last hour. And just as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have appeared. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not belong to us. 
For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their departure made it clear that none of them belonged to us. I don't think that's the case here. Why? Go over with me to Galatians 5, 7 through 10. You were running so well. Who has obstructed you from obeying the truth? Such persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. There's that word again. A little leaven works through the whole batch of dough. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is troubling you will bear the judgment, whoever he may be, i.e. the foxes or fox in this hen house will be exposed. So we have those who are troubling and those who are troubled. But Paul is not shocked that Satan has deceitful workers to try and undermine his gospel. He's not shocked that they masquerade as agents of righteousness. He's not shocked at the work of Satan. He is shocked at the response of these Galatian believers. People think of this, if you would, as applying to perhaps a close friend or loved one of yours. And suddenly finding out he or she is secretly engrossed in some deceit or immorality. Think of the shock that would come over you. You are suddenly confronted with the fact you may never have really known him or her at all. This is the, this is the emotion that's coming over Paul at this point. Shock. And this is what launches Paul, the belief in this false notion that in order to receive salvation, you have to come through the rites and rituals of Judaism or through any rites or rituals or any ceremonies or any standards of morality or religion. It's a cursed distortion of the truth. The gospel is a gospel of grace. Faith alone, not works. The word disturbed in verse 7, or if you have the ESV, I believe it's troubled. These Judean Judaizers, they're disturbing you. Terrasantas in Greek. It means to shake up, to agitate. This specific form is found really in only one other place. In Acts 17, and Paul was in Berea, where it says... But then the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul and Berea also, and they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. So here's the issue, folks. They may not take away your salvation, but they're going to shake you up. They're going to agitate you. A variation of this a word was used of Herod when he heard that a king had been born in Bethlehem. He was deeply troubled. It's used of the disciples when they were in shock, thinking they saw a ghost in Galilee. It's used to describe the shock of Zechariah when he saw an angel. It's a very graphic word. Jesus speaks to disciples in John 14:1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Same idea, same word. The disciples were in chaos, agitation, because the Lord had told them he was going to die. But you know what? We're not surprised that the true gospel is under assault. We're not, we shouldn't be surprised it's under assault inside the church today. No sooner were the apostles preaching the true gospel than it was assaulted in their day from inside the church. By the way, that's where the most effective attacks come from, from inside. The gospel was altered. It was corrupted by certain persons who believed that Jesus was the Messiah, believed in his death and resurrection, called themselves Christians, but were adding works to salvation. They're trailing the Apostle Paul and other apostles through the New Testament, coming into the churches that Paul is planting and adding works to the gospel that he is preaching, which was the gospel of grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And this really brings us to where we want to begin our lesson today in verse 8. But even if we, 
or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. The, um, the word we there, as it was in verse 2, is illustrating that Paul brings in his colleagues into this argument. Barnabas, Silas, Timothy, who were with him preaching the gospel. Why is this important? He desires to impress on his wayward disciples that the controversy is not between one teacher and another, but between truth and falsehood. No minister of Christ, not even an angel, can alter the truth in Christ. You see, the argument Paul is making is the necessity of refuting that the teaching that calls the true gospel not the gospel, but only what? The gospel of Paul. Here we see Paul's wisdom. If this is the case, the Galatians are forced now to evaluate the source of the teaching they have just received. He's pushing them there. He's pushing them there. Taking into account in their mind, in their mind, that the legalizers, the Judaizers, were the official representatives of the Jerusalem apostles, while Paul was not. So Paul has to ward off this accusation, arguing that ultimately the human source does not matter, nor would it matter even if the source was an angelic one. Satan can disguise himself as an angel of light, as can his ministers. Go back with me, if you would, to 2 Corinthians 11, verses 12 through 15. But what I am doing, I will also continue to do. Listen closely. So that I may eliminate the opportunity from those who want an opportunity to be regarded as just we are in the matter about which they are boasting. See here the parallel with Galatians. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. So the Galatians must learn to evaluate their teachers, as do we all, by the way. Evaluating your teachers, being careful who you sit under, people, is very, very important. Because they who are teaching the altered gospel, leading the flock astray, will eventually experience their own culpability, their own condemnation, or as Paul says graphically, let them be damned. The word damned is the word accursed. So the phrasing of this verse literally is, Whosoever, however it may be, whoso behaves, let him be accursed. It's a word repeated twice, anathema, anathema. The curse pronounced by the apostle on his opponents, again, is, it's indirect here. But because it's brought about by a conclusion, it's still emphatic. So he's not pointing out names here. And, and we see this as well uh, quite a bit in Hebrews where the writer accuses those to whom the truth applies of the implications of disbelief. It is indirect. So I'm not calling you out, Bob, Mary, and Greg, by name, but you know who you are, and it applies to all of you. So it's still an emphatic statement, even though it's indirect. And the word anathema here, really, it's a root that has two branches. One, um, one uh, uh, it, to God's favor and the other to God's judgment and destruction. And it's this, it's this br uh, branch that we're dealing with here. 
it's actually related to the Hebrew word haram. And so it's, in, it's talking about slated for destruction. So, and in this, Paul does not leave himself out of this. He includes himself in this. So if we want to rephrase verse 8, we could say it this way. You have listened to these false teachers, but the gospel is one and unchangeable, admitting of no addition or modification. Even though I, Paul, and those who, such as Timothy, Titus, and Silas, are like-minded with me, or even a higher created being, an angel from heaven, should preach anything as supplementary to that, which I have preached, let him be accursed. So even if we had this good angel, one who descends out of heaven in magnificent brilliance, should come to you with any other gospel which we previously preached to you, by this time it's on at least a couple of missionary journeys, that angel, as I would be, is doomed and accursed. So, they, in review, they had been influenced to deny the gospel of grace, the message he had preached to them. Over in 1 Corinthians 16, 19-22, the churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Prisca greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. All the brothers and sisters greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The greeting is in my own hand, that of Paul. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be what? Accursed. Maranatha, meaning our Lord comes. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen. Now, if we talk about curses, as Paul does here in verse 8, there are curses throughout the Old and New Testament. As you go through the Old Testament, you'll find them, and you will find them again and again, where God pronounces curses on people who turned against him. You come to the New Testament, you see Jesus going into Jerusalem in Mark 11, seeing a fig tree and cursing the fig tree. But we really see this first in Genesis, don't we? When the fall occurred, where God pronounces a threefold curse. He curses Satan in that he promises judgment and condemnation, which of course involves Jesus destroying the plan of Satan by his resurrection. We see the curse on the woman. Pain is now introduced in the, fundam the most fundamental part of her existence, childbirth. Her future desire shall reflect her sin, the lust for withheld knowledge. And we see the curse on man, whereby all creation is cursed, including the earthly elements themselves, the dust. Man is cursed and begins to die. He will return to the dust from which he came. In the New Testament, in Mark 11, verse 11, Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple area. And after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve since it was already late. The next day, when they had left Bethany, he became hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if perhaps he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. For it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. Then we, I'm going to drop down to 20. As they passed by the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. And began reminding, reminded, being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, Look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered and said to them, Have faith in God. So what is this section about? Is it about figs and somehow Jesus forgot what time of year it was? No. 
It's about his sovereignty as Lord over creation. But moreover than this, it's about his godhood and unity with the Father. The cursing comes when his identity as Lord and Savior is questioned. Whether it's by Adam, by Eve, the serpent, the religious leaders, or by their offshoot, the Judaizers. In Mark 11, with the fig tree and its cursing, it's a symbol of the divine curse on the nation Israel for its rejection of God and the Messiah. Jesus attacked the Jewish religious system at the beginning of his ministry because of their blasphemy, and he assaulted the, the temple money changers at the end of his ministry. The curse that comes out of the mouth of Jesus is directly from heaven. The curse from God is when God is not pleased. The curse is severe and it's everlasting. People, that should be a very scary thought if you're not in him. And someone might say, well, it's one thing to have curses in the Old Testament, another thing to have curses from Jesus in the Gospels, and maybe even another thing to have Paul pronounce curses in the apostolic era. Well, what about today? Well, I'll tell you, God is still in the business of cursing. Consignment to judgment. Yes, is God still pronouncing destruction and devastation on people today? Yes. In First Corinthians sixteen twenty-two, if anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Same word, anathema. Damnation is pronounced on anyone who does not love the Lord Jesus Christ. More specifically, what does it mean to be accursed? For that, we go to Romans nine. I could wish, Paul speaking, that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren. He is very desirous for the Jews to come to Christ and is so passionate about it that he says, I could almost wish myself were accursed. And then he defines what it means, separated from Christ. Therefore, what? Separated from God, out of the presence of God. Well, there's more to it than that. Go over to Matthew chapter 25, 41. Jesus says, depart from me, you accursed, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Out of the presence of God, out of the presence of Christ, and into an internal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That's where the curse puts people. So Paul's curse here in Galatians is very severe, and it applies to everyone who perverts, deliberately perverts the gospel. People who dishonored God in the Old Testament, people who dishonored God in the gospels were cursed, people who reject Jesus Christ are cursed, and here in Galatians, people who pervert the gospel or substitute a false gospel are accursed. Anathemas are pronounced on them. So Paul, on whom daily comes all the care of the churches, affected with their state, concern for their recovery to the faith and establishment in it over and over again. Paul is not going to allow this imputation of him and the true gospel to continue. One could say, Paul, why are you getting so worked up? Why are you losing your temper? But I tell you folks, being animated being fervent for the gospel as Paul does here, using powerful language, is to the end of saving souls and restoration, no matter how out of fashion it might seem. No one in the world would criticize me for standing up in the marketplace or on social media and railing on and debating some political topic where I might lose my temper. It's both expected and encouraged. But somehow when you talk about the gospel, you need to soft sell it. You need to be Harvey Milk Toast. You need to just lay it on gradually. Not necessarily. 
You do what the situation calls for, as Paul does here in Galatians. Now, obviously, Satan, who wants to hold on to those who are in his kingdom of darkness, wants to confuse and deceive and distort the gospel. Thus, then becomes a major enterprise of Satan, so that you have people starting off believing something that's not true, does not save, and end up in hell saying, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this and didn't we do that, only to hear, depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. To suck you in, most of what Satan tells us is true. It's the small minority of carefully crafted lying based on his observation of mankind's weaknesses for thousands of years that completely derails people. He disguises himself. That's what that word means. He disguises himself as an angel of light. He is a religionist. And the assaults on the gospel are relentless. Galatians is likely the second New Testament book written after Thessalonians. But already at the beginning of the ministry of the apostles, just halfway through the first century, there's already widespread distortion of the gospel promulgated by Satan, his demons, and his human agents. 2 Peter 2.2 uh, 2 warns against this in the strongest possible language. But false prophets also appeared among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly induce, introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Here's that accursed again. Many will follow their indecent behavior, and because of them the way of truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Jude repeats that in his brief epistle. The Lord gives letters to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3 that describe the already accomplished destruction of false teachers. We come to Galatians 1.9. As you have said before, even now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you believed, he is to be accursed. So again, nine builds on eight. He's, he's telling them, I say it again, I, as I said it beforehand, as I foretold to you. The con contrast between this plural and the singular, when he says the word say, proves that Paul is here referring not just to previous warnings of his own by letter, but probably to joint warnings given by his companions, Silas and Timothy, as well as himself during his visit to the churches. So the truth expressed in eight is strengthened in nine. Even we, I or a fellow worker or a holy angel, must be on the subject of God's holy curse, then all the more divine curse must be poured out on these pretend Christians who are perpetrating this crime. So anathem here is not some kind of a wish, but it's an effective invocation. And this condemnation aimed at the troublemakers is simultaneously one of solemn warning to those Galatians bewitched by this thinking allowing themselves to be misled. It is clear they were forewarned. After the Council of Jerusalem in AD 49, both he and Silas have realized Judaizers are not at all satisfied with the results of this council and will try to figure out how to undermine these proclamations. The increased potency of verse 9 is evident. What is in verse 9 more closely uh, ties to the sin going on in Galatia. Um, the one we preached in verse 8 is changed to the one you accepted. So it's assuming they're accepting this, these lies. And second, if the possibility that we or an angel from heaven in 8 
becomes anyone in verse 9. But it's very important that the issue of adding works to the gospel be understood to have been settled. If we go over to the 15th chapter of Acts, and please go there with me. Acts chapter 15, verse 1. The leaders of the church in Jerusalem, the apostles, this is the last time the apostles are all seen together in the book of Acts. They're together in Jerusalem. And they're making final decisions about the essence of the gospel and what they are to preach when they scatter themselves around the world. Verse 1. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had a heated argument and debate with them, the brothers determined that Paul and Barnabas and some of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Therefore, after having been sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. And they were bringing great joy to all the brothers and sisters. When they arrived in Jerusalem, they were received by the church, the apostles, and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees, who had believed, stood up, saying, Here it is. It is necessary to circumcise them and direct them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders came together to look into this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Since this is the case, why are you putting God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our forefathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in the same way as they also are. All the people kept silent and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating all the signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. So you see what's happening here. These Judaizers who had come to Galatia and other places from Jerusalem, you look at Galatians 2, 2, it implies they come probably through James, the brother of our Lord, who was the leader in the Jerusalem church. So they, they're not anti-Christian, they're declared Christians representing the true God of the Old Testament and believing as Christ as Messiah. Well, they have come from Jerusalem, the home church, and may very well have been known by Paul. And they have also decided that salvation cannot occur unless there are practices and rites and rituals and ceremonies kept of the Old Testament. So you want to think of this as you would as friendly fire. But Paul is not so friendly to this friendly fire. He doesn't see this as a minor detail. What harm if they want to be circumcised? What harm if they want to keep the Sabbath? What harm if they want to follow the ceremonies and rituals and dietary laws? What harm is that? Well, deadly harm, damning harm. Because if you add any work to the gospel, you have undone grace. Down in verse 6, the apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. Peter's answer, did you need to be circumcised to be saved? You see, Peter's answer is, have you forgotten that I went to the Gentiles, to Cornelius, namely, early in the book of Acts, and we took the gospel to the Gentiles? They believed. They received the Holy Spirit. It was manifest miraculously that they had received the Holy Spirit. Well, obviously, then they're not circumcised. People, God knows the heart. He testified to the reality of their salvation by giving them the Holy Spirit. He cleansed their heart by faith. 
Paul says in Titus, to Titus in Titus 1, those who advocate circumcision must be silenced. There's only one gospel. There's only one God. It involves no rites, no rituals, no ceremonies, no works of religion. And that's the message Paul wants to deliver here. He has a certain sanctified fury about him at this point. Now, someone might say, what about uh, Romans 12? Verse 14. It says, bless not and curse not. That's different. In the life of the church among believers, when we are personally offended, we bless and curse not. God provides the vengeance. If vengeance is necessary, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. We forgive, we bless, we turn the other cheek as Jesus did. But that's when we're personally offended. Paul asked the Galatians one question. You receive the Holy Spirit. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by law? Did you receive the Holy Spirit because you were circumcised? Did you receive the Holy Spirit because you went through some ritual, some rite, some ceremony? Now, of course, he's writing largely to Gentiles who know nothing about this directly. Well, of course not. You receive the Holy Spirit and you know you received him because your spirit witnesses with God's spirit that you are a child of God. So you know you receive the spirit by the hearing of faith. Don't be so foolish. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now made perfect by Judaic works? Are you, you were saved by faith, you received the Spirit by faith, and now you're going to turn to works? Is it that somehow supersedes faith? Now they're believers, so what's the danger, you might ask? They're not going to lose their salvation. The danger is they will give in to Satan's reinterpretation of the gospel, and consequently, they will be like Ephesians 4.14. They will be like children tossed to and fro, carried about by every wind of doctrine. And then, though a true believer cannot lose his salvation, they will cease to have a clear understanding of the gospel to then go out and proclaim it to the world. And I would say, people, that's exactly where the evangelical church is today. It isn't that people in these churches aren't saved. They were saved by grace through faith alone. They received the Spirit by faith, but they've been led down a path to tolerate false gospels that add words to faith, works to faith, baptism to faith, certain rituals to faith, morality to faith, adding the giving up of rinsing, dancing, and movies to faith. Something you have to do to play your role to qualify for grace. Well, that's where I think a lot of the church is today. We see this in Romans 4. Obviously, uh, verses 7 through 12. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven, whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then, how then was it credited while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Well, not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised that righteousness might be credited to them. And the father of circumcision to those not only are of the circumcision, but who will also follow in the steps of our faith, of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. As I mentioned earlier in Galatians 5, Paul asks, you were running well. Who hindered you? Who did this? This persuasion did not come from God. You didn't get this from God. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. You let this settle into your congregation and its corruption will penetrate everything. Yet he has confidence 
that they will withstand this. A curse is coming on, uh, on the head of he who did this. I'm not saying you're necessarily going to adopt a false gospel. My concern is you're going to tolerate a false gospel. And so I ask you people, who among us is going to get up and, and pronounce damnation on every false gospel that tries to come in here? That's what we are called to do. My job, our jobs as elders, is to guard the flock from error, no matter what the source. Verse 10, I'll close with this. Verse 10 is the beginning of his first important thesis, and this is the transition to it, which we'll get to later um, in the next few sermons. For, I am now, for am I now seeking the favor of people or of God? Or am I striving to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. So Paul was accused of being a pleaser of men by his enemies, and therefore at the expense of truth. They would say, he, a Jew, somehow wormed his way into this Gentile world and just wants to please men. He wants to be popular. He wants to be accepted. He wants to be liked. So strip out the gospel of works that are necessary so as not to make it too difficult for the Gentiles. He should, if he was telling the truth, have demanded that the Gentiles be circumcised and therefore adhere to the Mosaic laws. But he strips that out in order to make the gospel easy just to please the Gentiles. And then to top it off from another angle... Uh, this Saul obviously slipped down to the DDS and conveniently changed his name to Paul. When the other apostles were clearly identified, when they were proclaiming the wonderful works of God on the day of Pentecost, when the church was born, they were preaching the gospel. This man, Paul, was a non-believer. He was a fanatical, zealous Pharisee. He was a blasphemer of God and a persecutor of Christ and Christians. Well, how was he... How can he possibly claim to be an apostle when he, when he is anything but? So in chapter 1, verse 10, and really going all the way through chapter 2, um, Paul presents one of the most remarkable, powerful testimonies of New Testament Scripture in defense of his authority. Paul's defense is, after having preached to them, for at least five years. Do man-pleasers really pronounce anathemas against those who teach false gospels, as I have done? On the other hand, I also don't condone the belligerent and, and fault-finding attitudes of the Jewish religious crusaders. Paul does not say he is never concerned with pleasing men when the gospel was not the direct issue, that's very important. He is saying he is not pleasing men as opposed to pleasing God. When he pleases men, it is always to draw them to the cross through the gospel. So the sense of the verse is this. Intent. Have I made myself clear enough about Christ's gospel? Can anyone now charge that I seek to please men in presenting it? The absurdity of this is, highlight, is heightened by the next thing he says. I am a servant of Christ. The absurdity of this, of this is, if you look at what Jesus had said in Matthew 6.24, no one can serve, what? Two masters. Thus, when faced with the necessity of a choice, Paul chooses to stand with the Lord, whose slave he has become, his doulos. The use of the word slave is curious because this letter to the Galatians is about what? Freedom. Because you see, for the true believer, true freedom is only found in bondage to Christ. 
close with this. If you can go with me over to 1 Corinthians 9, verse 16. This, of course, is the context of him being slandered for seeking gain from his ministry. Nine, um, 1 Corinthians 9, 16. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast about, for I am under compulsion. For woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have been entrusted with a commission nevertheless. Paul is compelled by the Spirit to do what he does. What then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Here it comes. For though I am free from all people, I have made myself a slave, a doulos to all, so that I may gain more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might gain Jews. To those who were under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being under the law myself, so that I might gain those who were under the law. To those who are without the law, Gentiles, I became as one without the law, though not being without the law, but under the law of Christ, so that I might gain those who were without the law. To the weak, I became weak that I might gain the weak. I become all things to all people, so I might by all means save some. People, as we go out into the world, as we preach the good news of spiritual freedom in Christ, do we employ all means to all mankind to save some? Do we evangelize creatively, boldly, let truth yet truthfully, so that some may come to Christ? Lord, we just come before you and thank you for this time. Thank you for this. Thank you for the life of Paul as you blessed him through the Spirit. Lord, we'll just help us to convict, be convicted of our own um, laziness, our own sloppiness. And as we um, follow you, as we take you for granted, as we ignore you, that we don't fall as those in the Galatian church did into um, into um, just uh, being tolerant of everyone and everything without careful thought and, and holding it up to the truth of scripture. Lord, we just thank you for this time. We thank you for all your blessings in Jesus' name. Amen.